So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's open up here, starting in verse 18. Gosh, guys, I like my introduction a little bit, but I got to throw it out because that was more important than my introduction, all right? The introduction to this sermon is going to be reading the passage, all right? And then we're just going to get into it and delve into all that the Lord has for us. Verse 18 of 1 Corinthians, the verses will be on the screens. The ushers are going to be handing them out if you raise your hands. The church was divided. We saw that last week. They're dividing over, you know, hey, this speaker's more eloquent. This one is more spiritual. I follow this guy. I follow that guy. Man, God doesn't look at things the way that we look at things. He's not impressed by the things we're impressed with. He just, he operates on another level. That's what we're going to find here in verse 18. Let's read. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Is not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him... God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength." Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 18, where we started, Paul begins by saying, the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing. It's foolishness for those who, through their rejection of Jesus, have nothing to defend themselves with when the impending judgment of God is before them regarding their sins. What's so stupid to them about the cross? Because that's what the word means, foolish. It just means stupid. What's stupid about it? Well, it's very core and essential premise. That God humbled himself, put on flesh in Jesus to die a criminal's death. That Jesus took away the sins of the world on the cross to express the boundless grace and love of God for those who would believe. To the Jews... That would have been totally backwards. The promised Messiah of the Old Testament, the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one, was going to be the Messiah, the Christ, specifically because he was going to bring military victory. Not die. He'd win. Right? It's like saying, Sun Yue is the greatest basketball player of all time. Oh, you guys don't know who that is? Oh, he was great back in 2008. He played 10 games. He racked up more fouls than points in his NBA career. You say, that's a horrible basketball player. A good basketball player scores points. Well, a Messiah is supposed to bring military victory in their minds. So it's, it's stupid, the idea. 
that Jesus was the Christ to the Jews. To the Romans, I mean, this whole bit about crucifixion, are you kidding me? That was the most vile, that was the most merciless form of execution. They didn't even execute their own citizens that way for the most part because it's so emptied a human being of dignity. That form of execution, crucifixion, what Jesus went through, man, that was reserved for enemies of the state. That was reserved for rebels and slaves. So to think that God in the flesh would subject himself to such a shameful death, that's foolishness. Taking together all the audiences of the ancient world, apart from the revelation of God's Spirit, were inclined to think, according to worldly wisdom, according to common sense, the gospel's not just nonsense, it's madness. It's for morons. But you understand, everything that Jesus taught is foolishness for those who are perishing. Everything that he taught is foolishness. Why would the greatest become the servant of all rather than the ruler of all? Well, that's how things work in the world. When you're the greatest, when you have the most authority, you rule everybody else. That's what you're supposed to do. But Jesus taught the greatest is supposed to be the servant of all. Why would anyone invest treasures in heaven by giving their stuff away? Why would you give to something like common ground when you can just hoard your wealth for yourself? Why would anyone take up the path of Jesus as he calls us to, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves and offer ourselves in self-giving love to other people who actually may take advantage of us so we bless those who curse us? I mean, that's absolute madness. That's foolishness to those who are perishing. They look at Jesus' way as the perfect way to waste your whole life. But to us who believe, the gospel is the power of God. Paul specifically says in verse 19, the gospel is the power to destroy the wisdom of the world's wise, to frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent. Meaning God's plan on the cross was deliberately to do something that both the Jews and the Gentiles, the greatest minds, would have never expected so he could put them in their place. You guys ever feel like putting someone in their place? You know, when someone's a little high and mighty, when someone's a little bit above where they ought to be in their own mind, you know, the time I feel instinctively I want to put someone in their place is when they're power tripping. Anytime someone's power tripping, it's usually through a role, a vocation of some kind. And my family just went through a, a flying experience. We went on an airplane. Uh, what do you call it? We, we flew. Um, <laughs> and we had to go through TSA. And let me tell you, a lot of kind people in TSA, a lot of patient people, for the most part, they're dealing with a lot of crazy people. The airport's about the most stressful place I've ever been, and they were keeping their cool. But, man, the person doing the little x-ray machine on the bags, really power tripping with me. I walk through the little thing and they go, sir, are you aware that there's a Nintendo Switch in the backpack that you did not take out? And it's like, dude, I've got 19 bins. You know how big my family is? I pulled out everything imagined. I'm not wearing shoes right now, sir. I did my best, right? But they're flexing on me. Well, you know what I got to do now? I got to take it out and rerun it through. And I'm like, well, geez, you know, at least it's not a bomb. 
I definitely did not say bomb in front of TSA. But it's power tripping, and we're all susceptible to it. We all find ourselves in certain places and stations of life where we think higher of ourselves than we ought to and lower of others. And can you imagine being God and seeing these tiny creatures, us human beings, with the teensy tiniest brain and with like two eyes to perceive the world, that's it, when God sees everything and two little ears to hear when God hears everything. You know, and here we are strutting around looking all proud because of our unimpressive to him accomplishments. You know, in their day, in Corinth, you know, they had the public square where the great orators are that are so intelligent, the philosophers of the age, and they're speaking, they're the professor of this, the doctor of this, and look at the way they string their words together, and everyone goes, ooh, ah, and God looks at it and goes, all these people facing their impending mortality while I'm eternal. Guys, what are we? What are we headed for apart from God? Do you know we turn into dirt? We turn into literal dust apart from the grace of God. And yet we assign ourselves so much glory while we're alive and think so much of our own thoughts and ways. In response to the human attitude, Paul's saying, God used the cross to teach us what God says elsewhere in the Word. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. So are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's got a way that we can't get to unless he's kind enough to hand it to us. So Paul, you know, asked rhetorically in verse 20, you know, where's the wise person? Bring him out. Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of the age? Bring out the best thinkers of our day. How do they measure up against God and his wisdom? You know, in every generation, there's ours. There's an endless stream of hucksters talking like they're experts. But if what people say doesn't emerge from this knowledge of God, if it doesn't point toward God, well, then what wisdom is there in it? You know, the supposed experts, man, they've led us astray through the centuries. I don't know if you guys know, but the medical experts used to treat maladies by bleeding people out. That was the experts. Oh, man, I'm feeling very, very ill. I'm on death's door stuff. Okay, let's cut you in this process called bloodletting, and that's going to solve this for you. Can you imagine? I feel like death. Let's break you open. And you'll feel great afterwards. That was the experts. But those same experts, you know, in the medical world, 1940s, they told us all smoking was great for your health. You go, why did everyone smoke in those days? Science was telling them to until they did science and found out it's the worst thing for your health. I mean, even just a few years ago in 2020, remember two weeks to bend the curve? That became two years not two weeks. Man, these are the experts. In the 1400s, the expert cartographers, you know, the map makers, they made such great maps that the expert explorer, Christopher Columbus, landed in the Bahamas, and he thought he was in Indonesia or Japan. And then we were so proud of him, we gave him a holiday. I mean, that's our experts. And that's a great example. You know, the experts create the maps that are incorrect, and everyone relies on them. 
and in life. The experts that are making maps in this world apart from God, man, they have no knowledge whatsoever. Compared to the knowledge of God, He made the world. He knows the map. He knows the perfect way. He's got the perfect truth. But as our appetite formed to hunger for the pure word of Christ, the word of the cross, the wisdom that's granted us in Jesus, or something else, what are you demanding? What are you looking for from God beyond what he's giving you, which is Jesus on the cross? Guys, it's the new year. It's a new attempt for me at Whole30, which if you don't know it, it's a diet where you can't have any fun. There's no fun allowed. Nothing tastes good. And my wife went to the grocery store and she went shopping, and I went in the pantry last night because I'm going to be preaching today, so I need a snack at night. And there's no chips. Where are the chips? There's no chips. This is my appetite. This is my hunger. This is how I have formed my desires. This is what I demand, okay? I don't talk to my wife that way. I ask nicely. But I go, where are the chips? Well, there's carrots. What are carrots? That's not my taste buds. That's not my appetite. I'm looking for something more. And when it comes to spirituality, we're looking for the chips. Everybody's looking for the chips. Someone wants something more. You're preaching a sermon. Oh, it's got to be funny. It's got to be really funny. Oh, this one's funny. Okay, this is good. You know, oh, it's got to be very intelligent. i got to walk away with all this different kind of insight. Oh, now, that's a good message. Oh, there's, it's got to be moving. It's got to be engaging. It's got to be sensational. There's got to be some breakthrough or else, man, it wasn't worth it at all. Paul says his diverse audience had preferences too. In verse 22, the Jews demanded signs. And the Greeks, what were they looking for? They were looking for wisdom. They were looking for intelligence. So you got one group that's going in going, man, I need that sensational something. I, I need this to be, wow. You know, it's got to be a flash and a bang. I need the signs. And if I didn't get those, man, there's nothing spiritual about this. And then you got the other group is going, man, we need to think deep thoughts and we need to talk about them in more and more complicated ways. And the more we do that, the more spiritual we feel. And if we don't feel spiritual, then there was nothing spiritual about this. But Paul was serving up the gospel, the message of the cross, whose sign and simplicity is self-giving love unto death. They didn't give either group what they were looking for. But to us who believe, it should be everything we need. It should be enough just to be faithful to the truth. It's all the power and wisdom we should require. Because the foolishness of God in the simple gospel is wiser than human wisdom. And it's stronger than human strength. Our best doesn't even touch God's worst. God's stupid is always smarter than human brilliance. So we see God works in ways to frustrate human intelligence and to defy human expectations, to bring down all human pride. And in verse 26, Paul gives the case study of his own audience back to them. He goes, guys, look at this. Think of what you were when you were called and you put your faith in Jesus. Not many of you were influential. You weren't wise, right? You weren't of a noble birth. You didn't come from a, you know, a family that was notable. And, and you think about, really think about what he's saying. Ouch. Ouch. I mean, he's going, basically, guys, do you want evidence that God works in ways in the world that are stupid to the rest of the world? Look who he picked to be on his team. You guys. That really proves God works in ways 
that are stupid to the rest of the world because why would he work with you guys and make you his starting lineup? Ouch! But this was the same method of Jesus. Jesus didn't come and go, okay, now i got to go to the Roman rulers because I need the government officials to know who I am so they can spread it out to the rest of the nation. I need to go to the Jewish Sanhedrin and get their approval, the Jewish ruling council, and work theology with them, and then that's really going to get the word out about the kingdom of God. Now, where did he go? He went to the tradesmen. He went to the poor. He went to the prostitutes. So God didn't need those of noble birth or the influential, the experts to get his job done, and he still doesn't because man when you guys win with your bench players or even worse than that if you win with the team manager and the water boy you know the guy who does the laundry and the guy who fills up the water can't then when you win you know that there's something more going on than just human talent like whoa that makes people notice God chose the weak things to shame the strong for what reason verse 29 that no one would have a reason to boast before him Guys, all we read today is about bringing down human pride. It was pride that was fueling the divisions of Corinth. Guys propping themselves up. Women propping themselves up. Oh, I know so much. I'm so much better than everybody else. And people following after certain people because of pride. They say, oh, it makes me higher. It makes me greater than everybody else because I'm associated with so-and-so. Right? It was pride that led people to not hear the message of God's wisdom, but bring in their own expectations to say, oh, it has to align with what I think is wisdom. That was human pride. And God opposes the proud. Scriptures say that again and again and again. If you have pride in your life, if you have pride in your heart, the promise of the Scripture, God is against that in you, and he's actually for you because he wants to diminish that in you. Jesus opposed the proud. Jesus humbled himself as an example for us. And if he took up the role of a servant, and no servant of a master is greater than his master, and Jesus is our master, and he was a servant, who are we to assert ourselves higher than him? Who are we to reach higher above his station? You see, that's the way of the world. But God is Xing that out. He's nullifying that. He's getting rid of it through the church. So when he assembled the church, he didn't need people that were notable and who had it all together and thought highly of themselves. He went to people like Paul, who wrote this letter, who saw himself, he says otherwise, as the chief of all sinners. And when God sees that heart, the humble heart, he says, now that's someone I can work with. Because when I work through that person, they will always know that it was me working through them and not them accomplishing it in their own power and they will keep giving me the credit, just like Paul does all throughout the Scriptures. And this is my story, friends. This is why God called me into ministry, many of you know, clear as day. Because I was not wise. I was not influential. I love my family, but they weren't well-to-do. I wasn't particularly gifted in anything as a young person. I was lowly. I was despised. I was not. I couldn't speak to anyone. I didn't speak up in class. I wouldn't talk to a stranger. I told you I was as timid as timid could be. But God chose me because He wanted to work his will through someone in the ministry who would always know. When someone pats me on the back and says, that's a great message, I go, I know exactly who I am. And I know exactly where it all comes from. God gets all the credit because I had a first row seat to see what he did in my life. So he gets the glory from start to finish. Guys, Christ is everything. Our being right with God and whole is in him. Our being sanctified and purified and washed clean, it has everything to do with what he has done. 
are being redeemed from the realm of death, from just being subject to becoming dirt, to the realm of the Spirit and the gift of everlasting life, it comes from His hand. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you want to talk about accomplishments, if you want to take pride in something, relish what God has done in His infinitely higher ways, in His loftier thoughts, His amazing grace, His boundless love, His gracious gift giving, His loving kindness, His humility, His sacrifice, the cross. Let's boast in the Lord. Now I want us to walk away with something in particular from this passage. I have three things, but I actually have time for one, and that's just fine. That's what I prayed through, and the Lord said, that's good. This is it. One thing we walk away from this with is, man, God hates pride. He hates pride. Be rid of it. Human pride. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 13.10, where there is strife, there is pride. If you got this, you got that. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. Proverbs 16.18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. As you think about human beings in community and in general like gears in an engine. And man, gears have some rough, sharp edges. And we, let's be honest, have some rough edges you know, we've got quirks, we got personality defects. We're sinners. You know, we, we fall short. And man, there's some sharp edges. And you put people together, put them together in marriage, put them together as roommates, you put them together in spiritual community, and man, if there's no humility, it just grinds. It's a grind. All those gears get worn down, the whole thing overheats, nothing happens. That's human pride. The presence of humility is like the oil. It just makes everything work. Humility makes everything work. It makes every relationship work. I mean, think about it. Humility in marriage, it's going to be a good marriage. Humility in friendships, humility among roommates, humility in the workplace, humility in church community, that's when things come together and it flows. That's the way God designed it to be. That's the reality, guys. What are we? You know, you got what distinguishes you. I got what distinguishes me. I say, oh, I'm a couple inches taller than you. What do we look like from God's view a million miles up? We're both a speck. What you think is so great about you, what I think is so great about me, if that's a cause for division, that's because of pride. Pride is what will make something like Common Ground never happen. Because someone says to themselves, Oof, I'm not giving my money to anybody else. I can't trust anyone with my money except myself when I spend it on myself. That's the only person I can trust, so I'm going to keep it. Humility is what opens us up and says, God, what's your plan? What's your way? What's going on beyond myself? And then it just flows. It just works. So let's embrace humility. In a posture of prayer this morning. And, you know, one thing that just keeps us humble, keeps us having an accurate view is when we boast in Christ, when we lift up the Lord then we have perspective on ourselves and everybody else. When we start going like this, well, comparing ourselves to each other, destruction, strife is on its way. When we lift up the Lord and boast in the one who's actually worthy of receiving those boasts, man, things come together. The Lord is at work. So let's pray together in that posture 
of humility and ask the Lord by His Holy Spirit to just take that pride from us. Lord, apart from You, what are we? We just, we just become dust, dirt. That's what we're headed for. Why do we assign ourselves glory? God, when You could gift us so much greater glory through Your grace in Your eternal kingdom. Lord, here we have all these things in our heart and mind we want to use to distinguish ourselves, to prop ourselves up. Ways that we think that are according to the world that are not according to your thoughts and your ways. God, we need to lay down our thoughts. We need to lay down our ways. We need to say, God, I don't know anything unless you give it to me. What's your way? What's your thought? It might seem stupid to the rest of the world, but... Man, every time we see you at work, every time we apply what's in your simple word, we see the fruit, we see the life, we see that your way is better. Man's best doesn't touch your worst, God. So Lord, I pray right now that if there's any reason for pride, if there's any pride in any relationships, marriages, in parenting, in friendships, among roommates, in church community, where or some have propped themselves up, Lord. Identify that, God. Rid it from our hearts. Take it from us, God. So that our only boast, God, is just about your grace, just about what you've done and what you're going to do. So just take a minute. Would you just confess that before the Lord? Ask the Lord to just humble you. That's what's right. That's what's true. That's what's accurate. And would he take those reasons for pride from your heart? before you. Everything comes together when we lift you up and we lower ourselves and we just experience your grace and your goodness because you lift up the humble. We don't need to lift ourselves up, Lord. It's much greater to be lifted up and given grace and love, boundless grace and love by you. Keep us humble, God. Bring us together. Be the spirit, the bond of our union with one another through the humility you're bringing about in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.